Welcome to Cinema Journal Presents Acomedia. I'm Christine Becker. And I'm Michael Kackman. And it's nearing the end of the semester. We've just got finals week to go. And wow, I'm looking forward to this one being over, gotta say. I mean, I always am. You know, it's good to end. Always, 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 but... This one has a little special spice to it that I would like to... A soup of (laughs) crisis. Yeah, that it's just been a lot to, to go through. It's been... I almost said the word fun. I don't quite mean that, but... There's been challenges to the teaching in the last month. That these I've, are not boring times. No, these are not boring times. And they've, in many ways, redoubled my uh, devotion to teaching and to talking with students. And, you know, I've really been um, buoyed by how passionate and thoughtful my students have been through this time. So it's a good thing for that, I guess, if you got to find silver linings. Yeah, you know, they're they're pretty amazing, mm-hmm. you know. Um and we're in the middle of some sort of epochal change, right? I mean, that right. you know, regardless of, of one's personal political perspective, we are in the middle of, or maybe at the beginning of, what is increasingly looking like a fairly radical overhaul of our understanding of our civic culture and, and how it's mediated and what kinds of um, mechanisms we have to communicate with one another across political divides. And it's pretty high-stakes stuff and really difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, a, that's a difficult moment to all of a sudden be, okay, welcome, voter. <laughs> Here are your keys to adulthood. Right, and to figure out how to talk about that with students, which yeah. and actually we've, um, we've been touting the previous couple of months, the interview that we've got coming in this episode with Susan Omer. And I'm very proud to say I think Susan Omer delivers on what we said she was yeah. going to give us to help us understand what it's like to teach during this climate and specifically teach about politics. And then we also touted, I think, that if anyone could make us feel at least a little bit warm and fuzzy inside about this, it's Susan Omer. And yeah. I do think she does that here. And so. We are lucky enough to have her uh, just down the hall from us as our colleague. But for the rest of you, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And let me make just one quick note on the audio here. Uh, I recorded this interview and I, it was the end of the semester. I'm tired. I screwed up a few things. So the first few minutes sound a little funky and then it flips after four minutes. And that was just, I had it on the wrong setting. So I apologize for the sudden shift. Maybe that's, you know, a nice metaphor for our sudden, the ground shifting underneath us, the audio, all the things around us are shifting. So that's reflected in our interview. You don't need to adjust your set. Okay, thank you. We also have coming up, after the conversation with Susan Omer, we have a conversation with Leslie Lamond talking about how it is that SEMS is organized and how conferences are put on and the hotel selection process and that kind of thing. So we'll bring that to you uh, shortly. Susan Omer is Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater and the William T. Carey and Helen Kuhn Carey Chair in Modern Communication at the University of Notre Dame. 
She is the author of George Gallup in Hollywood from Columbia University Press and is currently completing a book on the Disney studio during the 1940s. She teaches classes in film and television history and culture, including film and digital culture, Walt Disney, and of most interest to this interview, media and presidential elections. And this semester, she has taught two sections of that course, one to freshmen and another to juniors and seniors. I am joined here at Notre Dame by my colleague, Susan Omer. Thank you so much for joining Acomedia, Susan. Thank you for inviting me. We are very tired to, literally, I just said we are very tired to talk to you. We are. We are both say, tired. But. I literally, I meant to say we are very excited, but I think that's a Freudian slip. We're going to leave that in there. We are very tired right now. There are two weeks left in the semester, um, and especially the last month since the election has been a very... Uh, exhausting time. Mm-hmm. The last two weeks, I don't know, it's felt like years. Um, mm-hmm. But in fact, that's why we really wanted to talk to you, because you're finishing up a class, in fact, two classes, we'll get to that in a second, on media and the presidency. And I'm just really fascinated to hear how that experience has gone. And you've taught this multiple times now. You teach it during presidential election years. So you've taught it a number of times. And so I'm curious how this time around is compared to the previous times, the unique challenges of doing a class like this, benefits, drawbacks. What has this time been like? Well, you're right. I started teaching this class during the 2000 election, which was memorable in many ways, and I've taught it every four years since, and I always look forward to it. I love the subject. It is a joy to talk with our students about their thoughts and ideas about elections, but this one was memorable um, in, in positive and negative ways. One thing I've been thinking about is that this is an election. In the past, I used to struggle with the persona I would adopt in the classroom. So when I first started teaching this class, some of my colleagues in journalism, for example, advised that I should be neutral. I should not give away my political views. I should do my very best to be objective. And I obviously succeeded at that because one day when I was going on about something, a student came up to me and said, now I can tell you're a strong supporter of George Bush. So I thought, (laughs) okay, I've gone too far in the other direction. So I tried that for two elections. And then I think it was in 08, I thought, this is not what people do, and it's not me. Um, so I decided we were. I was just going to be candid. I said, I don't want you to waste five minutes guessing your professor's thoughts. It doesn't matter what my thoughts are. It's your thoughts that are important. So you know, here's here's what I think. Here's what I am. But my goal in this class is to, for all of us, to create an environment where we can talk to each other and listen attentively. That there are not many places in our society where we can do that about politics. And I said, if you feel me tilting in a certain direction, just call me on it. It's okay. And once, once a student did say, I think you're tilting. Um, but, but I think I was going off on a rant at that point. But in general, I found I'm much more comfortable with that. And I think the students appreciate the honesty that, that we all have strong views. And the important thing is how we talk about them, how we support them, how we develop our ideas. So I have felt that this year in particular, that's been a real challenge. Um, I set as a goal that we model uh, an environment of respectful listening, and it's not an environment that we've had much in this election. So in that sense, the class was unusual, I think, but I've really tried to do that, Hmm. to sort of break down some of that divisiveness. And I've been impressed. Students are respectful towards each other. They understand that we're all in this together, and they really do listen to each other, even when they obviously disagree. Mm-hmm. Well, that must have been especially interesting than teaching right after the election, because I taught the morning after the election, and my first class is on media stardom. And you have, when, when there's something really big going on, you have that debate, like, do I bring this into the classroom mm-hmm. or do I not? And mm-hmm. I'm never comfortable bringing in something that feels 
separate from the topic, but media stardom is about, you know, mm-hmm. except for class on media on the presidency, <laughs> it's about on the nose as you can get. So we had a really interesting conversation, but it was one of the hardest days I've ever had to teach. It was so stressful. I didn't know what they were going to say. I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know if I was going to say the wrong thing. There were a couple things where I felt like the wrong. I said the wrong thing. Um, so what was like that day then in that class where you have, and, and we had a lot of you know really heightened emotions mm-hmm. tied to that. Well, what was striking about that is that we did um, a secret ballot on election day. Um, I didn't do it before then. I didn't want anybody to worry about you know being outed. Um, but we did a secret ballot on election day, and it came out that in one class, two of 18 students uh, voted for Trump, and in the other class, three of about 30 voted for Trump. Mm-hmm. So it was a small number and certainly smaller than the general population. But before the election, the people who voted for Trump did not reveal themselves. Mm. They were much more cautious. And I figured that. I figured people were holding back for whatever reasons. The class after the election, they came out of the woodwork. They seemed empowered to speak. Like, all right, we won. Now I can talk about why that is or why I voted for him. So there was, and, and I think that was a welcome element to the conversation because they had been much more quiet before the election, so they, they did feel now that they could speak. Now, the students who voted for Clinton were distraught. I mean, the emotion, as you say, was very high that day. They were talking not only about how could this happen, but about the impact on their lives and the lives of other students. Um, that people who were here as part of the DACA program were worried about what would happen. People were worried about family members or friends being deported. They were worried about implications for their their lives down the road. I mean, there was, compared to other times I've taught this, a much more emotional, much more fearful, genuinely fearful and anxious reaction about how this was going to affect them. It wasn't just a change in administration. It was my life could be upended because of this. So that was really striking compared to previous years. Hmm. And I wanted to follow up with one other aspect of the course, because you had two versions of this course, mm-hmm. one that you taught to freshmen here at Notre Dame and then one to upperclassmen. So what uh, comparisons and contrasts stand out between those two student bases? Well, this was the first time I did that, and I can't wait to do this in 2020 because it was fascinating. The freshmen, it's their first semester in college. So they're, one of the things they're getting used to is what can we talk about in college? Mm-hmm. And you could see them gaining more confidence in their own voices that, yes, we can talk about, for example, the Black Lives matter movement. We can talk about your experiences, your friends' experiences, what you think about this. You don't have to hold back, that this is what we're here for. You know, our university president talks about universities as a a place where we can freely and frankly explore ideas, and I believe that passionately, Mm. and it's one of the goals that I try to communicate to the freshmen. So the other thing that was wonderful about them is that they are discovering what it means to be a voter. Mm. And in some ways, I'm really sorry it was this election, because this could form their baseline idea of what an election is. I'll never forget the day after Trump was asked whether or not he would accept the results, and he said, if I win... One of the students, in all innocence, raised his hand and said, now, is this what they normally say after the election? And I just said, oh, no, that of course it isn't, but how would you know that? So I worry sometimes about the ideas they're developing about what an election is like because this was not normal. Hmm. But in general, what was also exciting about working with the first-year students is that there's a lot of this class that deals with election history. Um, We had a long segment on the debates, and we looked at 
um, the televised debates and particular moments and how they were put together, and they did a great deal of reading about it. And the freshmen hadn't seen any of these, so mm. things were really new for them and exciting. Um, the, the juniors and seniors, many of them are film and TV majors. They're very sophisticated at analyzing images. They're more cynical because they understand how things work. The freshmen are still in shock that these things go on, um, but they're, they're becoming very sophisticated analysts. But the juniors and seniors, I think, reflect the benefit of the education that they've had here. They have a broad context of history and politics. Um, they're able to represent their ideas thoughtfully. That training in philosophy, I think, pays off. Um, they write well. Um, they, they have a broader framework of understanding. Um, this isn't completely new to them. They have some other parallels that they can um, understand it with. As you mentioned there, you uh, focus a lot on history uh, in your class, presidential campaigns and elections. So I'm curious about which of those you, first of all, which every time do you get really excited about you know, getting to teach which particular moments in, in history? And then also which ones seem most relevant right now? We've had a lot of you know, people saying, never seen anything like this. And so are there precedents for some of this? Is there something that isn't unprecedented? So what are some of the key moments in, in history you like to reflect on? It's interesting because it varies with each, each election and mm -hmm. you don't always know. This summer I was thinking, okay, what's the comparison going to be? And then I realized and in fact, the New York Times said it about a month after I realized it, so I thought, okay, I'm in good company, 1968, because there's a perception of disorder and unrest, and people are protesting, and the economy is troubled, and we're in a war that is is um, not always popular, and along comes a Republican who says, I can restore order. Mm. I will bring back stability. I will bring back the country that you know and love from the past. So absolutely that, that sense of things are going amok, and I'm the one who can bring it back. Um, and of course, we know what happens after that, and we will hope that we don't see it again. <laughs> um, so 68, and my freshmen started uh, reading um, Norman Mailer's Miami and the Siege of Chicago. And there, one of the things I did was to sort of take them back to television in 1968. So we watched footage and medium cool for the Democratic Convention. But we also looked at television footage of the time of the Vietnam War when the cameras went into the field and you saw people bloodied and wounded on camera. Mm. They had never seen this. Mm. So when we talked about this is what you watch during dinner, and I remember that, you turn on the evening news, which is what there was then, and you saw that and they were just stunned by it. We also looked at footage from um, some guerrilla filmmakers in Chicago who showed what happened along Michigan Avenue during the protests. And there was this lost woman from the suburbs driving down the street and these soldiers in gas masks, hmm. full regalia, stop her car, make her get out. And the students who are used to shopping at Nike Town mm -hmm. are saying, look at that, that's the bridge <laughs> on Michigan Avenue. It really brought it home for them. So the 68 comparison was was perfect for mm -hmm. this election and in some disturbing ways too, um, but really perfect for it. The other thing that I really like to teach is the debates because mm -hmm. The, the class is organized in sync with the process of the election. So in the past, before this year, we started when the conventions were on because we start in late August, and up till now, that's when the conventions took place. So I, I felt really sad this year that the conventions happened in July, so we didn't get to do it live, although we still talked about conventions. But we were able to focus on the debates. Mm. And as you know, um, the president of the university had a forum on debates, and Bob Schieffer was here, and... 
um, other moderators, um, Jim Lehrer, my freshman read Lehrer's book on the debates, mm. Tension City, so there he was. So what the other reason I love teaching this class is that you don't always get to teach a class that it is in sync with current events. I'm an historian, so to teach something that is happening now <laughs> is really fun. And I will also, it helps the students see that what they're learning matters to these people. Like I'll never forget when Bob Schieffer was up there on stage, he was talking about slogans and campaigns. And he said, for example, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. Well, we had just looked ah. at the election of 1840. And literally, I was sitting at the end of a row of 24 people, and I felt this wave <laughs> go all the way down the row. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Bob Schieffer knows about Tippecanoe and Tyler too. So that was really cool that suddenly they realize here's somebody who's involved in current events, and he knows about this stuff that we studied in class. Mm -hmm. So that was great that it has, it has actual meaning to people. Also, I'm curious to get your perspective, since you especially have this long perspective on other historical moments, on uh, the media strategies the candidates used through this campaign and Trump's often very unusual media strategies and then Hillary's perhaps more traditional ones. It's a huge question because one of the things you talked about, too, is other elections that parallel this one. And one thing that my students are seeing is how much things remain the same. Like one mm. of them is writing a paper on... Um, the campaign of 1992, and she said she was reading a transcript of some of the debates, and she had to double-check what year it was <laughs> because they were talking about the economy and the war in the Middle East and, and Clinton running as an outsider, and she said, really, you would think it was today. So one thing that strikes you is how things don't change in that way. Hmm. But another thing that we see is that in the past 20 years, we've had this tension between political campaigns that are extraordinarily media savvy. I taught the war room this morning, and that's very much the filmmakers, Pennebaker and Hedges, focus on Carville and Stephanopoulos in 1992. And they're the media strategists, they're the campaign strategists. So it's a film about the process of thinking about a campaign. They actually wanted to follow Clinton, but he had other people following him, so he <laughs> said no. So they decided to focus on his strategists and his communications people. So it's meta in that sense that you're reflecting on the process. Mm -hmm. So there's this strain in our field of reflecting very deeply about the construction of the political persona, the strategy behind different advertising campaigns. We train our students to do it. I train them to do it in this class. So there's this awareness of the construction of the image. But at the same time, we've had a trend, certainly since primary colors in, in the early 90s, but since 2000 as well, of films that take apart the image. You think mm. of Alexandra Pelosi's Journeys with George, which my students just love. George Bush, the son, is this relaxed, affable guy who's teasing the press and they hang out with him. You get why people like him. Hmm. You really do. The notion that would you want to have a beer with this guy? Absolutely. <laughs> the whole plane would want to have a beer with him. So you have media that purport to give us the actual person, the behind-the-scenes person. And both of these, both of these, I think, are coming into tension. And what's what was fascinating about this campaign is that Hillary, I think, exemplified all the strategic expertise of of the past 20 years. I mean, she had great advisors. She had her husband. She knew what she was doing. It was textbook perfect in that sense. But she is, and I was thinking today too. I mean. If you wanted to develop a political resume, she had it in every way. You know, senator, secretary of state, first lady, whatever. It's like if you deliberately prepared yourself to do this, she did it. But 
she was up against the disruptor. (laughs) That's what he was in a year of disruption. And here's a guy who just makes up his own rules, apparently. And I, I think one of the questions for us going forward is just how accidentally or intuitively mm. disruptive was this and right. how much was it strategic. So, for example, um, in the war room, there's a sequence where Stephanopoulos and Carville go into the spin room after the third debate, and they spin, and Mary Madeline spins. And so we talked with the first-year students about what spinning was and what it accomplished. And, and then I played them a clip from Trump after the third debate where he went into the spin room. And you may remember, it was this cataclysmic moment, like the candidates in the spin room, not his PR people, not even Kelly, Kelly and Conway, but him. So, and of course, what happens? The press drops everything. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who else is in there, they go for him. So I asked the class, if you were a reporter and the candidate comes in, why would you drop everything and cover him? So we got into ideas of, he's not the spin person, he's the candidate. So in that sense, it's more real. Hmm. So he's working with that. He is also creating live news. Um, And he is continuing the debate in a way Hmm. with, it's the offstage portion. They asked him flat out questions like, well, how exactly are you going to do this? You know, the debate formalizes it and he has his formal answer. But in the spin room, he talks. It's It has the same problems as everything else. He said that no specifics. Somebody said, how are you going to do all this? He pointed to his forehead, and the reporter said, what do you mean? He said, it's intelligence. It's up here. Now, hmm. that's not a policy. <laughs> but that was a complete disruption of the usual mechanism of, of the press. But I, I do think the question is how calculated, in fact, that was. So we've been seeing this, this dynamic of understanding the construction of images in the most sophisticated way, but also media that purport to give us the authentic cells Mm. behind the scenes. And then here comes somebody who's saying, I'm just me, I say what I think, et cetera, et cetera. But you got to wonder. He's a smart guy who knows television the way others really don't. So I think one of the stories of the next couple years will be the thinking and the calculations behind some of these choices. Which is so difficult to get our grounding. Just in the past week, he's been tweeting things, and people are saying, like, oh, he's tweeting these ridiculous things, complaining about the press, because he wants to distract us from, you know, the the global interest, yeah, (laughs) and and so forth. And yet... Especially a lot of this is so off the cuff. And this morning he was tweeting about how, you know, we, we should put people in jail who burn the flag. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm hard pressed to find that there is actually a strategy there because he seems like he's he's just got this sort of thin skin way of going off the cuff. And I think the media then that's so outside of what their usual practices are, they don't know what to do with him. And so you've got like some saying just like reporting it straight, some calling him out for lying. Um, the other part of this that's very confusing going forward is this notion of like trying to understand who they really are, the idea that we're all looking through different filters, too. So my dad, my dad sent me this email, list of quote-unquote facts about Donald Trump, which was clearly, like it started with he was born on this date and purported to be this, you know, just straight-up list of facts, but then it slowly moved into ideology and tried to kind of praise him for his business and so forth. And I told him, Dad, I could give you a list of 50 facts that would have the exact opposite impression and that would show him to be, a, you know, a disastrous potential damaging force. And this is one of my great concerns going forward. How do my dad and I come to some common ground where we're both consuming the same media, the same facts, the same realities? And that's, I'm not sure of a a solution in that. You know, I can easily say, well, media literacy is the answer, but I don't know how to enact that across the board. Well, you're right. I mean, it's something that we can help our students develop further. But 
people are already out there. A student was in this afternoon and we were talking about that, that if your parents or your grandparents think that way, they're not in class <laughs> and, you know, they may not believe what you say. But this is, this is an interesting that you bring this up because last week one of the big topics of conversation in the media was the notion of fake news and mm -hmm. how people get these ideas from fake news. And one conclusion that was bandied about by various columnists is that media are partly to blame because they don't call it out that the reporting is often Trump says X and Clinton says Y and nobody says Trump is flat out lying or that's completely wrong because they don't want to appear to be partisan. Mm -hmm. However, one of the things I found so astonishing this week is when Trump yesterday said that there was widespread voter fraud in three states and when the New York Times and other outlets reported this, the headline was Trump, without any evidence, <laughs> says they would not have done that two weeks ago. Wow. They really wouldn't have. Um, they would just report it. So to have that as the first sentence you hear hmm. suggests that maybe there's going to be more attention to calling it out. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly encouraging our students to check the source, to look more carefully. But they're educated. They understand right. how to do this. So you're right. The, the question is other people. And also how you have a discussion with people coming from such different frameworks. One thing I said to my classes right at the beginning is, I genuinely don't understand some of these things. For example, why someone who had lost a job in a coal mine would think that the man who lives in Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue above Tiffany's, well, not above Tiffany's, but above jewelry stores, would understand the situation. I genuinely don't get that. Mm -hmm. But obviously people believe that. So, And the class was very helpful in offering their <laughs> thoughts about why this might be. But it illustrates why it is important to be frank about what we don't understand and listen to what people say because maybe in the past there have been disagreements and we could see different sides. But this year, I think a lot of us are genuinely stunned. We really mm -hmm. don't get it. So having the ability to talk to each other and listen is even more important, I think. Which also I think is why it's been so exhausting the past yes. few because we're having to have conversations and think about things we're not used to. And um, you know, hopefully we can take some positive away from that. And I guess speaking of that, then going forward, two questions then. One, what do you think media studies should be focused on going forward in a, in a Trump presidency? And then secondly, what kind of skills and knowledge should we be instilling in our students specifically? Well, one thing I thought about is that I think we've done a very good job of educating our students to take images apart. And some of them have become cynical, some of them are proud of their skill, but they can do that. Is that all we need in this environment? I don't think so. I mean, I think more of their good old liberal arts education is what's needed to be able to understand sources, to make arguments intelligently, to take apart someone's assertions when they just don't make any sense. I mean, actual critical thinking skills that focus on, dare I say, content as much <laughs> as the structure of the, the medium in which it's expressed. That. We're going to need that. I don't mm. think it's just a question of taking images apart. Another thing I think is there is this desire for authenticity, for going directly to the people, the belief that the, the media interferes. I mean, Trump supposedly loves Twitter because it's direct. Well, that was the same thing that Franklin Roosevelt felt about radio mm. when he gave his fireside chats, um, going directly to people. So how... I think it would be great to help our students understand how authenticity works, how it can be a choice and a construct that doesn't look like one, but it, it can be one. Mm. And so how that can be a strategic decision, um, why it's beneficial to do an end run around major media outlets or 
you go live to present yourself, but how is that in fact being used to accomplish certain strategic goals? So I see those as two very important things to focus on that hmm. will equip them to deal with the environment that they're in going forward. Um, well, then, as a last question, do you want to spoil for us? What are the, what are the final words you're going to say to your students <laughs> as they go out the door into the, the Trump presidency starting next month? Uh, I'm still thinking about it. But one of the things that it makes me laugh to think of it now, when I first started teaching this course, I was very worried about what would I do after the election because we have another couple weeks of the semester. I thought, oh, what can <laughs> I do. But then I realized, well, first of all, you can do all sorts of things, but we have the inauguration. Mm. So I thought I want students to be equipped when they see the inauguration. Yeah. For example, how much of it is required by law, which is very little, hmm. and how much of it is tradition and what people have done in the past that we're carrying on. Um, so we're going to talk about that. The other thing we're doing this week is First Ladies, which is uh. my absolute favorite thing. <laughs> if I were reincarnated, I would come <laughs> back as an historian of First Ladies. No kidding. It's just, it's so fabulous because of the way that First Ladies represent ideas about women's roles in different time periods. And we've had some stunners. Today we talked about Mrs. Washington and Abigail Adams and Dolly Madison, who illustrate different aspects of being a First Lady, but all of them anticipate or model characteristics that we have now in First Ladies. They're very, they're very memorable in that way. But I would say, you know, I'm still thinking about what I want to say to them, but I want them to feel that they're better equipped to understand and participate in their environment. And I want them to realize that the education that they have and the critical skills that they have will make it possible for them to be active and intelligent participants and not to hesitate. Don't mm -hmm. hold back, don't be quiet. You know, we're hearing this notion now, give them a chance, well, we have no choice. Uh, or don't criticize just yet. I say you start talking about <laughs> what you agree or disagree with from day one mm -hmm. because decisions are being made that are going to set the tone and the framework for the next four years. So you better believe you speak up. So I want to encourage them to do that, to not hesitate, to see our class as a as a model that can maybe help them going forward to do that. I want them to feel, because they are so anxious and they are so fearful, I want them to feel that they can deal with this and that they are equipped to deal with it and that they have a good base to move forward from. Mm -hmm. So. However that comes out on the last day, that's that's what I hope they take away. Well, that sounds great. And i got to say this interview has been very inspirational because that's been one thing <laughs> I've struggled with. The You know, you know, I feel like in, in many ways Trump is a you know rebuke of everything I teach. And so there's that motivation of getting up in the morning. How do I keep teaching? And as you said, also, we can't teach everybody. But having command of a classroom and the, the um, you know, the gift to you know, help students better navigate this world and through how all this world is mediated for us, media studies, I think media studies couldn't be more important. As hard as it is sometimes for me to get up in the morning to teach it, it's also a clarion call of how important it is. So um, so thank you for the inspiration you've offered to uh, ACA Media listeners today. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. All right, well, we hope you found that to be a really invigorating interview. Um, Susan's such an insightful person and such a great teacher, and so uh, we really thank her for giving a lot of insight at this, uh, this difficult moment in the semester. 
Yes. Many thanks. Yes. Well, next up, we want to give you a little bit more information about how the SCMS conference works. So we got a chance to talk to SCMS's conference coordinator, Leslie Lamond, to help fill in the membership about how all this stuff at the conference happens. Because I think a lot of us kind of just show up and the conference is there and we love things and we hate things and we don't really know how those things come together. So we wanted to get some insight on that from Leslie Lamond. Let's give it a listen. I would like to welcome to the ACA Media Podcast, Leslie Lamond. Hello. We all know Leslie. If you've been to an SEMS conference, you have seen Leslie Lamond uh, in the registration room or running around trying to put out fires. And so we're uh, really grateful to her for uh, talking to uh, ACA Media listeners to give us some insight on the SEMS conference and, and how it's all put together. So your title is SEMS Conference Manager. What duties does that position entail and, and how have your duties changed as SEMS has changed over the years? Um, first, I wanted to say that the SCMS conference is absolutely a group effort every year, as I'm sure you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so many people give tirelessly of their time to pull off the conference each year, and most of them are volunteers, that being the board, the program chair, the program committee, the host committee, the SIG caucus event coordinators. I could just go on and on. I'm constantly amazed at how, uh, how much of a well-oiled machine SCMS is, especially knowing how small our wonderful staff is and how well-run we are by our extremely dedicated and hardworking board. The next thing I kind of want to say is how much I care uh, for this organization and how fiercely loyal I am to it. Uh, the first SCMS I attended was in 1996 in Dallas. Um, And I was Justin Wyatt's RA at the time. Uh, I was in grad school, and my duties that semester were to assist Justin with the Dallas Conference. As you can imagine, I totally dug that experience. Uh, It was was Todd Haynes, Lodge Kerrigan, Jennifer Montgomery, and getting to meet all the the scholars that I had been reading and studying for years and years. So what was there not to like? I have to just r- quick interrupt. That was my yeah. very first SEMS. The was it SEMS. Really? So yeah, it was. Oh, we're together then, Chris. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Uh, I wish we both <laughs> we had a picture of those <laughs> from back then. Yeah. Um, but so that was 1996. And in 1999, I was working as a freelance production coordinator on film and television and live events in Dallas. And thankfully, luckily, Justin Wyatt and Bob Colker called and asked me to come and work with SCMS again. Mm -hmm. And so I've done so ever since. I work year-round for SCMS. It's kind of always been difficult for me to explain what I do for the society because it's really more of a fusion of all sorts of things because my responsibilities have grown as the organization has. I'm someone whose job it is to handle details, but I'll try to be a little bit more broad when I'm speaking about my responsibilities, so not as to bore everyone to tears. So some of the things I do are assist the board in selecting the conference site, doing like legwork and research, um, negotiating the contract with the hotel, negotiating another contract with whatever audiovisual company that we decide to go with, negotiating a third contract with our event services company, which is the people that provide us with registration counters and signage and stuff like that. Um, I coordinate and manage the conference in terms of time, the hotel, the vendors, the board, the home office, the program committee, the host committee, 
exhibitors, advertisers, et cetera, all kind of together, um, and handling the logistics as it pertains to panels and workshops and meetings and events and receptions and all that sort of thing. And then I help try to market the conference, get out as much helpful information to our members about the upcoming conference to make it the most pleasurable experience for them as possible. And then what I do with my part of the program is I work with Del Lamont, who happens to be my brother, um, to take the information from the <laughs> program committee, which comes to us having been copy edited by Mark Hain. And this is what this is what I mean. This is such a group effort. So the program comes to us from the program committee. It's been copy edited by Mark Hain. The work from Bruce Brazel has been done, figuring out you know the maze of the conference panel workshop scheduling information from exhibitors and other affiliated groups uh, regarding receptions and events, along with advertising. We take all that information and we kind of hunker down for an extremely intense three weeks of putting it all together. Yeah. (laughs) I always say that three weeks just scares me because, you know, if somebody gets sick or whatever, (laughs) well, you just have Mm. to get it done anyway because we've got a printer deadline to meet. And then we send the physical program to the program chair, the president, the home office, Mark Payne, you know, people who have looked at it in its other forms um, to kind of look it over. It gets proofed many times. Then once the program is done and um, to the printer, that's when we start with the full-time logistics of room setups and tables and AV and catering and the award ceremony and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, The good thing is that by the time that we have stared at that (laughs) program for weeks and weeks and weeks, we're really familiar with it and uh, able to work through it pretty well. If you're listening to this podcast and you've never listened to the Alchemedia segment with Bruce Brazel that you all did about panel and workshop scheduling, yeah. I highly recommend that you Google that because it'll make your head spin and just, you're, <laughs> I'm amazed every year what he does with that. And lastly, just in explaining my job, I just wanted to thank two people that I couldn't exist without um, on an annual basis. And that's the two people who helped me with the conference. Their names are Ginger Lee and the other one is my brother, Del Lamond. Ginger is my right hand at the conference. She makes sure everything is running smoothly each day. And Del is, helps me along with the layout and design of our conference program. He designs the graphics and the signage and the social media art and all that kind of stuff, though award ceremony slides. And he works uh, with SCMS on special projects throughout the year as well. well that's a lot. <laughs> there are a lot of uh, a lot of things you're juggling in that job. It's fun, and it's interesting, and it's always different. Yeah. So I enjoy it. Well, let me ask about one particular uh, ball that you juggle then, because I think yeah. a, a lot of, of our listeners want to know about how we end up with particular venues for the SMS conference. I will say that the process is not always the same. It depends, among other things, on kind of what type of economic market we're in. For the sake of our conversation, Chris, I'll talk about the market we're in now, Mm -hmm. which is a seller's market. Hotels are enjoying record levels of occupancy and demand, which means that rates are climbing and group space is increasingly hard for us to find. Mm -hmm. Um, We've kind of had to hone our negotiating strategy to try to get the space and dates and rates and concessions and all that 
that um, we have all become accustomed to. A great deal of research is done before board meetings, kind of reaching out to hotels, convention visitor bureaus, national sales representatives, all trying to figure out which cities might be welcoming to us at any particular time. As most people know, the board has always tried to stick with kind of going from region to region, you know, east, west, central, international, and kind of trying to keep that equal. But lately, because it is such a seller's market, and our membership has made it clear that the most important thing about um, the conference, you know, in a certain way of looking at it, is the nightly rate that we're able to give people. Mm -hmm. We've kind of had to go with a, well, where can we get the best deal? So, you know, we haven't always been able to stick with the East, West, Central, International, but we like to when we can, and we definitely always try. Right. Uh, I've really never seen the hotel industry like this, and I've been doing this for a very long time. Mm. And everybody that I work with that does a similar job as myself, they all say the same thing. But at the same time, you can't get too crazy about it because the industry and the economy is so cyclical. And hotels are so skittish (laughs) that they're looking into booking further ahead than normal because they're in this um, seller's market. And they're trying to grab as much business as they can while they're in the driver's seat. I mean, it's understandable. Right. Some people are forecasting that hotels will be like this for the rest of the decade. Some people are saying that it'll start to taper off in 2017. I tend to think that based on our political climate in this country in particular, that there's no way for anybody to forecast what's what's going to happen. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that supply is not keeping up with demand um, in terms of hotels in a great deal of what we call tier one cities. And tier one cities are, are typically the big convention cities in the country. Mm-hmm. You know, Chicago, Orlando, Las Vegas, New York, San Francisco. Most of the cities that we go to are considered tier one cities. But it also pertains to things like airports with ample nonstop access, hotel inventory, abundant dining, a certain amount of committable sleeping rooms, leisure travel appeal, all that kind of stuff. And as the rates are are going up in the tier one cities, tier two cities are kind of following suit, which which are the smaller, like Birmingham, Alabama, places like that, Pittsburgh. So we're just trying to go kind of, (laughs) I hate to say it, uh, you know, where the wind takes us, but it really is wherever we feel we can get our membership the best bang for their buck kind of thing. Right. A few of the issues that hotels have had with us um, as an organization is our rooms to space ratio. Everyone that's ever been to an SCMS conference knows that we take up an immense amount of meeting space. We almost kill, <laughs> kill, kill the meeting space in any hotel that we're going to. So, you know, they have, they take issue with us about that. Mm -hmm. We need to be in a hotel that has about 800 guest rooms to get the kind of meeting space we need. Um, And when we're looking at hotels that have that many guest rooms and we're only willing to contract for 350, 400, maybe 450 even on peak nights, The hotels are turning us down as they can find larger groups to take up almost all of their inventory 
and pay them more in food and beverage and that kind of thing. So that leads me to the next one. A lot of them have take issue with, they believe that we don't order enough food and beverage, <laughs> that our room block is not high enough, that our dates are limited. We always have been sticking around the March or almost March dates and our rate parameters. You know, we go in being very transparent and saying we would never want our rate to be more than X, Y, Z. You know, we, we want the lowest rate you can possibly give us. It would be nice if we could raise our contracted room, room nights. We're trying an experiment in Chicago and raising it as much as we feel is responsible while still protecting the organization. And that's, a, what, that's really the reason why everybody's always saying, you know, if you can stay at the conference hotel, please do. One way to look at it is the room nights kind of subsidize everything else we do because that's how the hotels look at it. The more room nights we can block, the better. And I completely understand if there's someone listening to this that says that they have called the hotel and our room block has been sold out before. And that's because we have to protect the society and can only contract for as many rooms as we can wisely forecast for based on past history. So if more people stayed at the conference hotel, we could increase our room block. That being said, we do monitor our room block on almost a daily basis. And we add as many rooms as the hotel will allow us on the back end, even after our contract has been sold out. If you ever have trouble getting a room at the hotel, I would ask that people please email hotel at scmsconference.com and we will work with you and do all that we can to get you a room in the hotel. Well, after your first answer, my metaphor was juggling. The second answer seems like it's, you know, trying to throw a dart into a right. pretty thin bullseye that you got, <laughs> you know, you got a very particular range of right. possibilities you have to, to accomplish all that. Right. Are there any additional like behind the scenes aspects of planning SEMS conferences that you wish more members knew about? I kind of want to share what um, SEMS looks for in a mm-hmm. site as well so that people understand that we really do look for all the things that they care about. We look for location and accessibility, convenience, easy transport, hubs for competing airlines. Fewer cities than you'd think have hotels with enough space to accommodate us. Probably most, most of us realize that. We strongly prefer hotels that protect their labor force and avoid jurisdictions where there are policies in place that our members are likely to find objectionable. We take into account how easily our international members will be able to get to a certain place. Is the hotel ADA certified? Is there enough meeting space? Um, The flow and kind of the layout of the space. Will we be able to find an AV company that meets our needs? Is the hotel aesthetically pleasing? Will people have natural light? Can you walk to quick restaurants for lunch and dinner? What are their sustainability and green policies? What are their policies on the uh, LGBT community, their inclusiveness and diversity policies, but just basically, you know, how much can we negotiate and save and what will our SCMS attendees experience be? We try to make it as comfortable and inclusive for everyone that attends. In terms of what I would love for more of our members to know about, I wish that everyone knew how mindful and deliberative the process is Mm -hmm. 
how uh, everything that the board does um, is done with a great deal of care and with thought about how it will affect our members and what's best for our members. In terms of conference planning, nothing's willy-nilly. You know, the board and the staff carefully weigh all kinds of decisions about where not only to hold the conference, but the size of the conference, the budget of the conference, the events at the conference, how to give people as many value-added benefits like complimentary Wi-Fi in the guest room or free Wi-Fi in the meeting space. You know, we've all uh, in Montreal, we were able to get breakfast at the Fairmont Anybody that stays at the hotel will get a $15 food and beverage credit that you can even use at the bar. <laughs> uh, posted to, to their hotel room. Yeah, to their hotel room every night. So, um, you know, just trying to give people as much as we possibly can. The fact that the conference is a very large puzzle with a thousand little pieces that somehow has to go together in the end, you know, is something for people to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. All of us tend to focus on the things that we care about or, or are interested in, but the conference has to be a place where everyone feels valued and heard and where people can choose to participate as little or as much as they wish. And I'm proud that SCMS is an inclusive organization mm-hmm. that values differences as much as we do. That we've looked into going to all of the following cities, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Austin, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Portland, San Diego, Miami, Pittsburgh, Dallas, <laughs> New Orleans, Nashville, Cuba, Puerto Rico. Basically, if you <laughs> think of it, we've looked into mm-hmm. it. Um, we've also looked into international cities. And right now, that's just difficult financially for us as a society. Right. Um, another thing on the survey each year, people mention that they attend other conferences and their rates are, their nightly rates are better. And that's typically when we hear about things like that, I can, I'll respond and say, you know, when is that conference? Because it's generally in December or January. And we just have to remember that our conference is in March, where uh, a great deal of places consider that peak season. And even when it's not peak season for a particular city, like in Chicago, it's not considered peak season, but we still have competition with spring break and things like that. And then many times when people have said that they've had a better rate at another conference, it's a bigger conference where that organization can give more ring nights to the hotel. So they're just able to negotiate a cheaper rate. So those are, those are really the things that I hope that people take away from this, that we really do. We really are working very, very hard um, to try to get the best deals for everyone and that the conference sites are really just not, <laughs> you know, they seem very random sometimes and just draw, I, I, you know, people think they're just drawn out of thin air or it's because a particular person must want to go to a particular place, but that's, that's not... Um, that is not what's been happening. So. All right. Well, then my, my third metaphor is you are a ninja. These sound like ninja <laughs> skills to be able to nav- navigate and negotiate all of that. Thanks, Chris. That's very nice of you. Well, let me get you out with uh, one last question then. If you have yeah. any uh, things we should know about going into Chicago in March of 2017, any uh, tips about the conference venue we should know about? Um, one thing that I think that I should share that uh, 
most people probably don't realize, um, and we will be getting more information out about soon, is that a portion of this year's conference will take place in the Mid-America Club, which is connected to the Fairmont Chicago. Mm -hmm. So we will have some panels and workshops and events in the Fairmont Chicago and some in the Mid-America Club, and they're connected by a headway basically, by a walkway. So there will be a little bit more, you know, it'll be like um, if people can remember being at the Hilton Chicago, you know, where it's this massive building and you're walking from one end to the other. But we, you know, we did the thing where we videotaped it and we timed it. (laughs) Multiple people did it in in different ways. And um, we just thought when we compared it with the other hotels that were up against it, we felt like it was the best choice because it had it, it was giving us all the rooms have uh, an abundance of natural light. We feel like people will feel comfortable and be able to walk around, and there are lots of networking little places to sit, you know, sit and gather. And we'll have a nice lounge this year. We're, we're really looking forward to it. We think it'll be a very uh, successful conference. The uh, conference program, the draft, um, will be put up soon online. Mm-hmm. 2017 is shaping up to be a, a wonderful <laughs> CMS conference, all so right. we we look forward to it. I hope we also have the uh, the wonderful circumstance we had last time of the just happening to run into the furry conference. Yes, so I hope right? we have something else delightful this time. <laughs> yes, I agree. I agree. And I assume that was one of the things you couldn't possibly plan for with your ninja skills right? that we would be with furries. <laughs> But that ended up being, I think, the, the talk of the conference. So so even yeah. sometimes you can just luck into good stuff. Right. That was great, I have to say. <laughs> All right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for this information. We really greatly appreciate it. And we look forward to uh, seeing you all in Chicago in March. Thank you, Chris. Well, it's great to hear from Les. She's been working on hosting SEMS conferences forever. She is the she is the man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and that uh, you know that long scope of, of knowledge is really informative to uh, to the membership, who we just experience all it in a piecemeal way to to hear an overall view of how it all comes together. I think is really in, important and informative. Yeah. And for so many of us, SEMS is the big conference, and so you know it feels like. Like to us, it might feel like a small, large conference, you know, compared to something like MLA or something. But of course, uh, when you're a conference organizer and negotiating with hotels, we're actually a really large, small conference, which mm-hmm. upends some of those um, expectations about how spaces will be allocated and stuff. Yeah. So it's a challenge. Yeah. And we're grateful to everyone who does, who works so hard to put on such, you know, because that conference is hugely important to people. I mean, it's critical in terms of, you know, things like hiring and promotion, your your um, participation in SEMS. So we're grateful for all the work people put into uh, making that platform available to us. Yes. So many thanks uh, to Leslie and to all of the hardworking staff back at the main office. Thank you. And as long as we're on thank yous, we'll uh, finish the episode up here with our usual thank you. But it's the end of... Cue the jingle bells. Yes. It's the end of the year. And we're in, you know, that kind of reflective, looking back on the year mood. So we want to give... eggnog. Yeah. Well, there you go. We should have started with that. Um, just give some, like, extra thank yous to the people who help make Acamedia happen across the year. And so, first of all, SCMS gives us um, a grant to help pay to keep this going. So thank you so much to uh, SCMS for the great support you give us all year long. 
And that support also comes in the form of uh, back channel emails from uh, some of you and from uh, some of the members of the board and the staff who are really generous with their suggestions and, and ideas and, and helpful. Uh, so we're very grateful for that. Definitely. We also want to thank, um, I sort of say our elves, but that seems really insulting to describe our, our, you know, the people working alongside us. We're all Santa Clauses. So, oh, oh. yes. So Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University and the Department of Communication at Denison University. Thank you so much for uh, all the help, insight, uh, and support and encouragement. Yeah. Bill has been involved in this from the very beginning. I think mm-hmm. he was on board even before I was, right? As I think a, so. As a producer. Yeah. I remember yeah. him saying, yeah, Michael, it'd be a great idea. Yeah. So. So those of you out there... Rue the day. Blame Bill. Blame Bill. Um, Bill built essentially our website, and Mm -hmm. the public face of Acomedia is engineered by Bill. Yep. Um, We also, in just about every possible way, couldn't do this without Todd Thompson. I mentioned earlier that I screwed up the audio on Susan Omer's uh, interview, and I screwed it up in way more ways than you guys could even imagine. But we have Todd Thompson and the incredible work he can do with even the smallest to the largest mistake and fixing all of our errors and making us sound like we have some measure of competence. I swear we do. But um, the, the way uh, Todd polishes everything and then adds in the music, it's just its really incredible work he does. We wouldn't be Acomedia without Todd Thompson's expertise. It's true. Sometimes working with a pro really makes a big difference. Right. So thank you, Todd. And then our, uh, and I think, did Joel and Stephanie come on board this year? Or was it last year? I think it was around this time last year because we met up then at SCMS and we'd already been... Uh, working together for a few months. Yeah, so uh, if, we, if we've had a particularly good year, I think we can then thank especially Joel Neville Anderson at University of Rochester and Stephanie Brown at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So thanks so much to them for stepping up to volunteer to help. And again, in all kinds of ways, you uh, listeners don't have any idea. They're doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. So we're so grateful to uh, the help that they've offered us. Yes, indeed. All right, and just a few final housekeeping notes. Thank you to, in this particular episode, Susan Omer for giving us a really great insight into teaching in this very difficult time. We're also grateful to Leslie Lamont, the SCMS Conference Coordinator, for sharing some of her experience and insights. And uh, check out our website for links to everything in this episode. That's aca-media.org. Follow our Twitter feed, aca underscore media, and leave a review on iTunes. Given, you know, if you're doing your end-of-the-year reflections, things that you thought helped you out in 2016, if ACA Media was one of those things drop a review on itunes for us those of you who are teachers know that the numbers matter but the thing that everybody goes straight to are the comments so (laughs) you know if you've got some if you've got some things to share um, fill out our evals yeah (laughs) fill out those evals we can't we can't grade without them yes all right well that wraps us up for 2016 you'll next hear us in the year 2017 jingle 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 yeah let's hope we all make it